This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Just marveling at how you're all sitting so wonderfully, neatly in rows, in contrast to yesterday. It's much more reassuring. It's, it's an interesting process in Sushin, you know. And it's especially when. Uh, Half the group don't know what they're doing, you know, because it's their first time, or it's their first time in this space. It's my first time in this space to do sashimi. I wasn't sure whether the, the dawn or the shotan hit the bells. Once we had a uh, kind of a special teaching in Green Gulch Farm, part of that. San Francisco Zen Center Mandala. I don't know quite how it came about, but it was to enact kind of an unusual set of forms that had been developed a couple of hundred years after Dogen Zenji died. And we had brought together all these Zen teachers from around the country. And so we were all there learning something different, you know. After years and years of doing things a certain way, now we had to learn to do something a different way. And it's very interesting to watch myself and, and these other teachers. And we, we made lots of mistakes, you know. These two young monks, I think they're from Maheji. Somehow they knew all the details. And they say, okay, we're going to do this, and we're going to do it like this, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do this. And then we'd mess it all up. But the interesting thing, the thing, I thought, well, what the heck did we learn over all those years? You know? I think we learned to mess it up and to not be uh, upset. And then the, the young monks would come out and say, no, you didn't get it right. Oh, we did? Oh. What did we do wrong? We did this wrong, this wrong, and this wrong. So, eventually, we sort of got it right. Um, I don't want to frighten you, but within Soto Zen, within each detail, there's another cluster of details. You know? Like, uh, hold it up like this. Well, that's just the beginning. Doing a full frustration. Um, there's details within the details. But the marvelous, and it is a marvel, the marvelous part of it is that um, every time we have a sashimi, every time we do a ceremony, we recreate 
every time you, you sit down and do zazen, there's a way in which you're recreating yourself. And if you pay close attention, it's absurdly messy. You know? It really is. You've barely adjusted your back before some thought or image comes to mind. to the details. Another one. Uh, we're halfway through the period. Uh, the whole thing's devolved into a struggle for survival. <laughs> you know, in that regard, uh, use your common sense. It, it's... There's some merit to uh, enduring a struggle for survival. But it's limited. There's a dedication, a diligence, a perseverance. Beautiful. Um, But if you're beating up on your body and creating distress in your mind, it's not so likely, it's not impossible, but it's not so likely to uh, enhance, enable your awareness. It just sees what happens and allows it to come and go. So use your common sense. Don't build in strategies in, a, in a, some kind of clever process to avoid discomfort. But, but don't, um, don't turn the thing into a struggle for survival. Now I would say, if you need to move, if you can, before you do anything, notice the experience usually some discomfort somewhere in your body. Notice that. Notice the state of mind it creates. And then move slowly and deliberately. As if the whole point of zazen was to move when it hurts. Like you're getting down to the real practice. Uh, Like that. Notice what happens when you move. Notice as you lift up that knee that's red hot and go into rest pose. Uh, The acute discomfort starts to dissipate. The secondary tension in your body starts to dissipate. The agitation in your mind starts to dissipate. Your breath softens. We see something of the extraordinary conditioned nature of our body, our breath and our mind. We see something of the yoga 
of releasing. And it starts to teach us something of the skill of sitting with discomfort. One of the things you learn as you continue in that reckless way is um, sometimes without moving you can let the secondary contraction dissipate. You can let the breath soften. You can let the agitation in the mind soften. Now that's an intriguing and deeply informative practice. Which is sitting there squirming and struggling is not the same thing. So try to notice the difference. And maybe towards the start of Shishin, you know, take it easy on yourself. As I say, don't get into a game of avoiding any kind of discomfort. But don't go the other way. There's some great virtuous uh, prize for enduring intolerable suffering. The nature of our practice is appropriate response. And when you trust yourself, when you give yourself that kind of authority, I will respond to this appropriately. I won't run away from it, and I won't wallow in it. And that will be a changing process. How this body and mind are on day two is most likely not going to be how they are on day four. It's not a, for those of you who haven't done Tashin, the intriguing thing is it's not a linear process. It hurt this much day one, it hit, hurt twice as much day two, no. Fortunately, it's not a geometric progression. Somewhere in there, all of our bodies make their own kinds of adjustments. The intriguing thing, even though part of us would think, well, this is a first-rate nuisance, having physical discomfort. In a way, Hishin would be more difficult without it. Just think if you could sit there without any deliberate attention to your body, how easy it would be for the mind to wander off into some uh, intriguing thoughts. How complacent or how arrogant it could become. Many years ago, someone said to me in Dokusan, you know, 
in Jung Sushi. I think I'm enlightened. I think I've dropped away all the hindrances. And, uh, and now I just look with pity at those other <laughs> practitioners. <laughs> say the person hadn't settled in and find some ease. But, uh, I think the conclusion needed a little examination. <laughs> <laughs> Which they find out for themselves. Because there was more shishin left. <laughs> <laughs> and similarly for those of you who are new to Orioki. It's bewildering. I mean, your mother never taught you this when you were young. <laughs> but please, uh, stick at it. You know, at a certain point, it will start to make sense. It's actually an extraordinary way to not only eat as a group efficiently, it's an extraordinary way to minimize the amount of movement and effort you're making in eating the food. You maybe haven't even noticed that we do this peculiar way of lifting and placing. When you hold it like that, it's one movement. But for now, just worry about getting your chopsticks done beside your bullets. So each of us is going through our own version of that, however that might be. And we're in a tradition that turns things upside down from the perspective of a beginner's mind. In some ways, the fact that you don't have a clue how to do Oriuki gives you a wonderful uh, opportunity to discover, to learn. For those of you to whom this is your first sashimi. It's like, uh, like each day is a journey into the unknown. It's like when we're children, you know. We haven't experienced so much of the world and each day is full of possibilities. And you have these weird people with you called adults who think they know what's going on and think they should tell you what to do. So Shishin's like that. Some of us think we know what's going on and plan to tell you what to do. Do it like this. So, in one hand, 
there's a kind of anarchy to it. And then on another hand, there's an extraordinary synthesis of our efforts. The other day I was mentioning chanting, you know. Of course you have your own voice and that's its own practice. Finding your voice, allowing your voice. But then blending that with all the other voices. And if you try to do that with your mind, um, usually it doesn't turn out so good. But there's an interesting way if you let your body take over, there's an impulse to harmonize, to have the voices blend into one sound. So in a way what I'm saying is, when we pay attention, when we're in learning mode, whether it's a pain in our knee, the details of how we do service, the details of Arioki, or how we chant together, or even how we space ourselves during Kinyi. When we pay attention to it, and we're in learning mode, we'll discover something. We will refine the process. I have seen Shishin's you know, at City Center in San Francisco. We're in the middle of Shishin, we started doing something different. Usually not radically different, but different. We didn't discuss it, just somehow it just became apparent to us. Like yesterday after tea, I uh, foolishly announced it's Kenyan now, but you can go to the bathroom if you wish. Uh, it's not what it said on the schedule. And you might think, well, I hadn't looked at it. Actually, I had looked at the schedule. And um, I thought, really? That's how they do it in Austin? They don't have a break after tea? Uh, interesting to see how that works. But I forgot that part. Um, but it became pretty clear, we do need a break there. There will be king in there. So we'll be adjusting things, we'll be tweaking things as we go along. We can say to ourselves, we can say about each other, Sometimes it's a psychological relief to criticize someone else instead of yourself. The terrible thing that's happening is it resides with someone else. Let you off the hook. When, when we just do this reflection, We're all in learning mode. We're all discovering. We're all recreating this form called Shishin. Yeah. The mistakes 
so-called mistakes are uh, are teaching of how to refine the process of sitting together. When we say, oh, that's not how we do it, this is how we do it. We're just saying, that's not how we do it, this is how we do it. It's not about good and bad, right and wrong. It's just about, this is how we do it. Maybe we'll change it tomorrow, (laughs) as we settle more. So I say all this in the service of inviting you to have a certain kind of disposition, attitude towards this process. In a way saying, don't focus or don't let yourself be absorbed in your struggle with your body, with the forms with each other. The very same details can offer us an an opening. Like this poem. Lovely little poem by Jane Hurstwood. who practiced for several years at Tassaro, back in the day. Jane was a slightly built woman, but she advocated, one could even say agitated, to be allowed to use a large chainsaw. (laughs) (laughs) So we let her use it. And then after one day she thought, I need a smaller chainsaw. But despite that, he's a marvelous poet. Or maybe because of that. <laughs> Poems called Tree. It's, it is foolish to let a young redwood grow next to your house. Even in this one lifetime, you will have to choose that great calm being, this clutter of soup pots and books. Already the first branch tips brush at the window, softly, calmly, immensity taps at your life. Softly, calmly, quietly, in each of these details, immensity taps at your life. You see the well-worn habits of who we are, in our behaviors, in our attitudes. As we conduct ourselves in these circumstances, It's a wonderful opportunity to start to see it. 
softly, quietly. Maybe in that moment it seems like a trivial observation. Someone said to me once at Tassara, she said, I was so annoyed that the person beside me forgot to pass the gamasio. I skipped the next meal so they wouldn't do it again. <laughs> it was probably not the first time in her life she felt somehow neglected, overlooked, that her needs were not being met. And she felt beside herself in how to relate to such terrible circumstances. Softly, calmly, immensely, doesn't have their well-established emotional, psychological, mental, physical patterns. What could be more understandable than being upset about all that, frustrated by it, distressed by it, discouraged. Maybe the next meal, I won't even go there so they can't inflict that horrible behavior on me again. Maybe they just spaced out because they were thinking of something that occurred to them in some happenstance way. Oh, after Shishin, I'm going to go swimming. Hmm. But maybe it also says something about how to take care of each other in this environment. Hmm? Someone told me this story about Thich Nhat Hanh once. They, um, they went on some kind of trip with him and about 30 or 40 people. And he said, I'm going to divide you into twos. Each of you is going to have a partner. And here's, here's how I want you to think of your partner. Think that there's just you, except now you have two bodies. And you're just going to take care of both bodies. So I would say to you, there's just you, but now you have 20 bodies. You know, 
and you just take care of all 20. I know it'll be a little difficult. You just think of those poor mothers who will have like 10 kids. Which of the three realms of existence, or you could also translate it as, which of the three Buddha bodies? The technical term would be Dharmakaya, well, Kaya's, Trikaya. Which of the three, which of the Trikaya do you abide in? One of the Trikaya realms of existence is the practical details. Right? When do you pass the Gamasya? How do you tie that funny knot at the end with the Aryoki? What is it to be equidistant from everybody when we're doing kingdom? The realm of particularity, the realm of manifest existence. Because, so you know, this is the realm of Shakyamuni Buddha, this manifest existence. And then on the other end, you have the realm of existence that goes beyond any conceptual construct. the immensity, tapping, calmly, softly, at the world according to me. Tapping. Hello. Is there anybody in there? Do you want to come out and play? It's on uh, Buddha. Varachana, it's called. And then the third row, the Sambhogakaya, is the interplay of the two. Very interestingly, it's often called the bliss realm. When we, when we can go back and forth, we can, when we can let these two intermingle, uh, 
it's like the physical realm becomes almost it has, still has all the details it still has all the particulars and the um, involvement of that but it has a spaciousness I was playing basketball with my four-year-old grandson but we were playing with an exercise ball it's about this size and we had no baskets and we had no rules but we had a lot of fun it's a very spacious game maybe we did have one rule that we both included and that we punched the ball around. Sometimes in the world of Buddhism we say real and unreal. Unreal is not a, a very good term. Maybe real and beyond real. So I hope this makes some sense to you. Such is the nature of mind. You can look at the floor and think, oh, Reminds me of my grandmother's house. Or you can look at the floor as I did this morning and thought, you know, it's time to resand this floor. <laughs> or you can look at the floor and have some odd emotion. They're very funny creatures human beings. A lot can go on for us with very little prompting. So those moments where something caps on it and says, hello, you want to come out and play? You want to hear the splashing of the fountain? that's part of the great ocean of existence. Because remember, you're mostly water. And the water in you has the same ceiling uh, percentage as the great ocean. And then before we know it, we're thinking, this floor could use a sanding. Or some old pain arises, emotional pain arises. And our, our mind contracts around it. So the monk said to Dungshan, he said, 
one of those three realms, which one do you abide in? Duncan said, uh, I stay close to that question. I try to keep noticing, yeah, which one am I in right now? Am I inside the world according to me? as it manifests in these particulars. Have I dropped all that and am I just seeing in a neutral way with bare attention the multiplicity of shades of brown that my mind is currently naming would. Hearing a bird cry like a hammer striking on the bell of emptiness. Just for a moment thinking, what am I going to do in this machine? Am I going to relive old struggles? Am I going to draw out of my playbook my usual way of coping with things? Am I going to construct my own, from my own ambitions, what success looks like? and commit my efforts to that. Or is it going to be a path of discovery? What is this organism I so casually call me? What are these thoughts and feelings that are so extraordinarily significant for me that I give my attention, my dedication, my energy to? And Dongshan says, I stay close to that question. And then he went on and he lived in a mountain and he did all sorts of things and had all sorts of students and started the school of Zen, which we are now enacting. Just a mere 
1,200 years later, almost as if it was yesterday. But the intrigue is, it still works. It's as relevant now as it was then. Because it's getting at the essence of being alive. It's getting at the essence of being a human being that exists in a codependently arising world. Someone gave me a ticket for a poetry reading. So the two of us went, and I sat down. And Jane Hurstfield came and sat on the seat beside me. I hadn't seen her for many years. And the poet was talking about something. And, uh, and I thought, I bet you that will remind Jane of this thing that we did at Tassajara. And she nudged me and said, that reminds me of, and I said, I know. <laughs> In a way, this is the gift of practice, that we can uh, discover how to be our, with our, ourselves and how to be with each other. best you can stay alive to the possibility and the potential. Someone came to me in Dogasang once in Shishin and they said, well, at city centers of flat roofs so we grow flowers on the roof. He said, I saw the flowers on the roof. Hmm. With a certain state of mind, that's an enormous accomplishment. It's also nothing special. But to just see the flowers 
let them open that door to immensity. To who knows? But to approach it with the disposition and attitude that allows all that. The possibility of all that. Thank you. <laughs>